Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, because it's so quiet and rural, uh, it's the ideal spot to mm. go missing. Just probably about 250 acres totally. Yeah. This goes to the bind and stretches back up near the three rivers. Three rivers meet up here. Mm. Uh, Kildare, Mead and Offaly. All right, OK. It was, uh, I left home at half eight, so I would come down here. And uh, your man found him and he wouldn't come back to me. He'd know me running along 50 yards between the road and then sit in the middle of the road, he's two paws out and he's head on it. And then get him here to where he is, actually he's gone and get a nickel rocket. So I was calling, he went up down even this evening, calling, calling, and not, wouldn't come back, not a fear. And uh, I had to bait myself through briars and bushes and everything, and there it was, he was going round in rings. Now he was only a pup at the time, was, was he? Six months old. He was running round in rings. And I said, what in the name is going on here? And, uh, yeah, that's what it was. And he always had a stick. Yeah, uh, just poked, just through, and then could, couldn't get through, so I poked again, and the next thing I said, uh-oh. It was still bright on the evening of September 2nd, 2016, when a man walking his dogs made a gruesome discovery in Rahan Woods, close to Carberry in County Kildare. Using a stick, he had poked at the ground and the brambles where his dog, Bobby, had circled, only to see a foot protruding from the undergrowth. Later, forensic experts would surmise that 24-year-old Philip Finnegan had died where he lay in the fetal position, his remains decapitated and charred from an attempt to burn his body. Philip had been stabbed to death in a frenzied attack. His murder and torture, Gardy would later tell a court, happened the previous August the 10th, and he'd gone undiscovered in his shallow grave until that September night. So who was Philip Finnegan, and how did he come to such a brutal end at the hands of his one-time friend, Stephen Penrose? What happened in Rahan Woods, 
And how did a gangland feud end in such a remote place? Today I'm talking with Sunday World Deputy Editor Niall Donald about one of gangland's most brutal kills. And I consider what effects has such violence on society, on families and on strangers who walk their dogs in lonely woods. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. In a lot of the, the most notorious murders in Ireland, um, the convictions have only been achieved because people walking their dogs or just taking a walk have come across um, uh, the remains of, 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 of people who've been murdered. There's obviously other cases where, where Gardaí have very strong sus- suspicion somebody has been killed, but the absence of, of a body being found means the case never comes to fruition. I mean, there are a couple of cases... Um, you know, a very high-profile murders where where just the fact that ra- randomly people came across the remains, for example, in the Elaine O'Hara's tragic murder for which Graham Dwyer, possibly the most notorious murder trial really in in in, in of recent years, is, is serving a life sentence. But her remains were discovered by a by a dog walker. Um, similarly, I suppose uh, Patricia O'Connor, another one of those really high-profile murders. And um, Patricia Connor was was dismembered, and um, um, she lived in Ratfarnham. And there are people serving sentences in connection with her death. Her remains were just discovered by somebody walking through, and uh, the Wicklow Mountains. It's very rare for somebody to be convicted of murder in the absence of a of a the remains of somebody being found. Philip Finnegan had been missing for almost a month before a dog walker and his two pets came across a crime scene in Rahan Woods. While we often hear of such scenes bringing to a close the mystery of the whereabouts of an unfortunate victim, do we ever really consider the enormity of making such a discovery? Like, do we ever imagine what it would be like to become part of a chain of evidence in a frightening case involving gang violence? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a horrific find. I mean, uh, these things have lo- long-lasting impacts on people. I mean, in the Sunday world, we had the... Uh, the, an interview with the people who found Patricia O'Connor's remains, um, and not dissimilar to the to the, the murder of Philip Finnegan, the body had been, you know, really dismembered, and 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 you know, it's clear that a, a, a gruesome find. Not to be disrespectful to anybody's remains, but certainly these are, you know, very traumatic. Uh, things for people to to uncover, but also, you know, they're important in the criminal justice system that these people then have to, that they they are, the the remains are found, it enables prosecutions. But you do see then the traumatic experience for people who are, you know, obviously just uh, have to go to court then, there has to be chains of evidence, they have to explain everything. And I think that can be a really, really difficult experience for, for people, particularly in cases involving gangland crime where witnesses, even if they're very incidental, certainly and justifiably fear for their own safety as a result. There's nothing as bad as looking for somebody uh, that can't be found. Mm. And everybody's running here and one there, and the parents and the kids and everyone's running, where, I wonder where is he? All of a sudden you have a body. So that's okay, you have somewhere to put and bury it and go and look at it, that's fine. Mm. But when you haven't got that body, you're in trouble. That's why I said I'd go forward and say, yep, yeah, let it off. In March uh, 2010, we had, in the Sunday world, we had a story about 
what was then called the Young Guns, which were uh, the people associated with the Crumlin Drimna feud. These were guys in their just in their teens associating with either the Brian Rattigan gang or the Fat Freddy gang. And they were using Bebo, uh, Bebo long gone now, but they were using Bebo to issue threats to each other, um, to slag each other off, to post unflattering pictures. And Philip Finnegan was associated with, with that young Rattigan gang. And um, these are guys who were, you know, already started to amass convictions and um, become the subject of guard investigations um, you know, were involved in the drugs trade in a kind of very localised way. Similarly, people from the other side, uh, the Fat Freddy side, I suppose, were, again, young guys who had access to weaponry, access to large amounts of drugs, were making money. And they had, even though they, you know, if you look back at, as we've talked about recently, Nicola, the the, the, uh, the Holiday Inn bust, which was 2001, if, if my memory serves me correctly, these guys would have been, you know, really, really young kids, but they had adopted that feud and were carrying it on really over social media. And it was a very new development at that stage because obviously social media was in its infancy. It was kind of shocking to see these people openly putting up these threats and, so, and you know, linking themselves to these feuds. Uh, you know, and little did we know that, that that social media would continue to play a huge part in the evolution of gangland in Ireland. So Philip Finnegan didn't have, you know, major criminal records, but he was associated with a, a group of young guys who were operating in the in the south inner city who looked up to Brian Rattigan as a kind of a hero figure. Brian Rattigan obviously was in prison at that point, but, you know, it's routinely accepted that he continued to pull strings from behind prison bars. And Philip Finnegan got sucked in with that crowd. Philip Finnegan may have been young, but he was no stranger to the brutal laws of gangland, where it's often hard to separate friend from foe. He'd cut his teeth with the Brian Rattigan gang, who'd continued to drug deal despite the lengthy incarceration of the boss. By 2016, relations had soured between Finnegan and his former associates, with the young dad being accused of owing a drug debt. As tensions grew over the money, Stephen Penrose, one of Ireland's most dangerous criminals, prepared for release from jail. He'd already killed a man. And now, his services were for hire. Philip Finnegan would have been involved in the drugs trade. He would have had relatively minor convictions. He'd also had been facing uh, firearms charges, but uh, he had been cleared of them ultimately in court. But he was, he was, you know, very much associated with that Radican gang and he was at the core of that younger group. However, when it comes to the drugs trade, the problem arises for these guys when something is caught, something goes wrong, and all of a sudden uh, these people end up owning huge amounts of money to the upper echelons of the gang. And that, by all accounts, seems to have happened to Philip Finnegan. He was in amassed a major debt for for uh, drugs and came under pressure to pay it, was unable to pay it, I would imagine. And then uh, an example was chosen to be made of him 
by the upper echelons of the Vatican gang, despite the fact that he had, you know, such a long-term association with these people, um, had been loyal, had, you know, all of those things. Uh, and that's how he met his fate. But Stephen Penrose was one of these violent and erratic criminals that was willing to carry out these sort of violent acts on behalf of, of his bosses in the Vatican gang. So, and was it up kind of like through these brambles like this? Yes. The Woggy Doggy, uh, I was up here doing his business. And you couldn't get Bobby back? No, not a fear. Bobby would not come back to me. My goodness. Oh. Right. Yeah. It's just here. Yeah, here, yeah. Now here somewhere there is a, a two-foot square concrete slab. We'll probably standing with all the brambles going over it. And this is where the action took place. So, what was here when you got here? Uh, this fellow was going around in rings. Yeah. And what I seen was, like, a hand or a, it was a foot. And I always have a stick. I drove it in, it got nothing, so I got back here further. And that's what it was. And it came up out of the ground a bit? Mm, yeah. And you just knew? I knew it was a uh, bother, yeah. So, um, did you have your phone with you? Always, yeah. So you were able to ping yeah, the location? But I left the dog's lead on the tree, because mm-hmm. he was only a puppy at the time. And I walked back down, they put a stone at the edge of the road. But as I was walking down that, I was coming Dushkies. It was about, could be ten, quarter past nine. I seen these two people coming in and I said, I'm in trouble because I didn't know what was happening. So I walked and walked and I said, we start the face the music. So the two boys, Bobby in particular, walked up to your man and wagged his tail and your man spoke. I recognised his voice, then I knew I'm okay. And the two boys had guns on their shoulders. They were going shooting ducky down in the wood. And did you think they might have had something to do with that? Of course, yeah. yeah. At the time, I didn't know what to think. My heart was you were so rattled, I'm sure. I was rattled. Oh, your man said it to me, you're rattled. I said, yeah, and he said, you found it. And I couldn't answer him. Mm. So I brought him up anyway, and his uh, partner works in the 999. So he rang her, and then that was it then. Yeah. About quarter twenty past nine on the 2nd of September, mm. Friday night. Stephen Penrose, in many ways, isn't the type of person that regularly finds themselves drawn to the underworld. He's a Garda's son, and by all accounts, he'd a privileged middle-class upbringing. However, his father has twice had to appear in court to give evidence for him. In both cases, he's been charged in relation to very brutal deaths. If you look at, compare the uh, upbringing of, of Philip Finnegan and, and Stephen Penrose, they are quite kind of quite opposite. You can see that Philip Finnegan came from a, a certain part of the, the city where drugs and, and all of that organised criminality was, was close to him. Um, you know, got sucked in at a very early age, uh, probably didn't know any better probably because his contemporaries were also, you know, getting involved in that lifestyle. But Stephen Penrose is one of those, although they are rare, they're not unheard of, the guys that seem to have to seem to almost go out of their way to become involved in organised criminality. And if their route into it is is really quite obscure. 
Back in 2010, Penrose was accused of the murder of David Charkey and found guilty of his manslaughter. So who was David Charkey and what happened to him? David Charkey was known to be involved in, in criminality and had a low-level involvement in the, in the drugs trade. Um, but he fell foul of Penrose and, and really met a brutal end. The death of David Charkey was carried out with kind of a level of violence that, although, you, you know, obviously murders occur all the time, but that sort of level of ferocity is, is still quite uncommon. You know, he was stabbed uh, 13 times with an 18-centimetre blade, through the shoulder blade, also through the heart, the stomach and the liver. Again, like the Philip Finnegan murder, Penrose then disposed of the body or attempted to dispose of the body. In this case, he put the, the, the dead man's remains in the boot of a BMW and then drove to Dunsink Lane in Finglas, where he planned to burn the remains to maybe, uh, you know, make it harder to be tracked down. However, in this occasion, he was, he was the guard, he followed him. I just came across him randomly, um, on, uh, who happened to be on patrol in the area, and uh, followed them to the halting site, um, at which point Penrose fled the scene. Um, in court, Penrose claimed that he had only, he was just planning to steal some heroin from Mr. Sharkey um, as a result of his drug addiction, which again became another you know, excuse or whatever way you want to look at it again um, when it did come to trial. But, you know, they're, they're, he obviously was found uh, guilty of the killing, in this case a manslaughter conviction, uh, not guilty of, of murder, which I suppose, you know, in this case it was judged that it wasn't premeditated or whatever. But of course, if he had been found guilty of murder, and um, ultimately the, the, the murder of Philip Finnegan uh, seven years later may not have occurred. Two months after he'd, he'd uh, finished his sentence for the Sharkey manslaughter, he was arrested again in relation to a, to a gun attack in Dunboyne in County Mead, in which shots were fired at a house in, in, in an estate there. After the gun attack, Penrose and a, and, a, and a woman fled to a house in County Kildare where a fire was uh, deliberately started in the property. Um, and Gardy were alerted to the fire and arrived at the house and Penrose and the, and the woman who was with him were suffering from the effects of smoke inhalation. Um, and after, being, after he was ultimately discharged from the hospital, he was immediately arrested because of 19 rounds of ammunition and two shotguns were found at the scene of the fire. So he was sentenced to three years in prison uh, with the final two years suspended for this offence in March 2017. So this is, you know, he was straight out of prison straight back involved in dangerous and violent organised crime. Fires seemed to be a thing with Penrose. An attempt had been made to burn the remains of Philip Finnegan and one had been set around the body of David Sharkey too. So when Niall tells me that the fire was deliberately started in that house, I wonder was there any evidence about who had started it? And was it Penrose again? Uh, I think it was himself again. And of course, in, in all the crimes that he served lengthy prison sentences for, you see an attempt to destroy evidence, uh, an attempt to stop forensic investigations occurring. But again, all of them, you see their level of impulsiveness, lack of ability to follow through with plans, and always a reliance on, on 
extreme violence to, to, to deal with the problems that he faces. That brings us to August 2016, when Philip Finnegan is very quickly reported missing by his mother, Angela. Yeah, so, I mean, he was, he was straight away reported missing. So there's obviously concern when people involved in gangland feuds are gone missing. But then again, these people that are under, under the watch of the Guardian and under the watch of rivals can uh, disappear out of the country for whatever reason. So there was, I do remember the, the missing notice coming in uh, recognising the name, but it wasn't immediately apparent that, that, that he'd met a, a, a violent end. So in the run-up to his death, Philip Finnegan had, as uh, Stephen Penrose's father gave evidence in court, that he had spent time with his son Stephen Penrose and, and Paul Penrose had, had seen them together. So straight away, uh, Stephen Penrose quickly became a suspect because of the contact they did had in, in, in the run-up to the murder. And he was arrested and questioned a number of times um, and seems to have given absolutely contradictory accounts of his own movements, Philip, Philip Finnegan's movements. At some point seemed to have said he suggested Finnegan might have been murdered. At other points suggested he was uh, abroad enjoying a Big Mac, I think, or, or he said at another stage he'd also given uh, contradictory accounts of his own movements. However, they had been pinned together through mobile phone evidence um, so I think at that point, the Gardaí were, you know, they had one suspect in mind, and that was, that was Stephen Penrose. Penrose had actually just been released from Garda custody in early September after 10 interviews with officers about the disappearance of Finnegan. With no body and no crime scene, they'd no reason to charge him. However, days later, the dog walker had made his find. Finnegan's remains were in a dreadful state of decomposition. But like most crime scenes, the one at Rahan Woods, where Finnegan had lain in a shallow grave, gave up its secrets and told a shocking story of the ferocity of the violence used to end his life. He'd obviously suffered, a, I think it was described as a frenzied attack. Obviously, there's gangland murders and, you know, they, they leave a grieving family in each case and they're all horrific. But um, the level of violence showed uh, to carry out an attack like that is it's still very, very shocking. Um, particularly if you consider that, as, as Stephen Penrose's father had said in court, these guys just a couple of days earlier had been speaking to each other like they were best friends. And, you know, they had that personal connection and that, um, you know, it appears subsequently that Stephen Penrose's uh, had no particular a personal gripe with Philip Finnegan. He'd merely done it because he was ordered to do it. So his his body had been, and I know it's distressing for the family, but his body had suffered severe um, uh, mutilation, really. Um, and the decapitation, uh, you know, was a particularly gruesome act. Beside the body, there was a fork, a knife, a garden glove and a mobile phone clearly showing that Penrose had planned this murder and brought his tools with him to carry it out. It was strikingly similar to the killing of Sharkey, who was stabbed 13 times in the back. And what followed was an attempt to burn his remains. Yeah, so they, they are quite remarkably uh, similar. Um, it was suggested to, to Penrose at one stage during his, his questioning by Gardy that he may have even 
uh, forced Philip Finnegan to dig his own grave. Um, though, of course, because of the passage of time, that wasn't either proven or disproven in court either way. Um, but again, it's, you know, you know, uh, to, to shoot somebody from a distance is a very different thing than to, to stab them up close and repeatedly like that. It does take a particular type of mentality for somebody to be able to commit that that kind of violence on a on a person, particularly solely for what appears to be just financial gain. So Penrose had been released by the time Finnegan's body was found. But what happened next? So Stephen Penrose is ultimately rearrested in November and was ultimately charged with murder and brought before the courts. During the trial, there was a lot of evidence given on behalf of the state. Some of it focused on a series of phone calls made from a cell in Port Leash Prison. The, the state put forward the, mo- the, the, the motive for the murder, which was to do with uh, money owed by Philip Finnegan to the broader Rattigan gang. Um, the person who he had spoken to, although the fo- there was a phone call, details of a phone call from Port Leash Prison, the person was not named but um, it can't, you know, it, it it is known that that person was associated with the Rattigan gang, and um, that seems to have been the, the motive for the murder arranged from behind behind bars. What happened then in the court beyond that was far from normal. Obviously, most of these gangland trials for murder, you know, they're very the stakes are very high. It's it's basically somebody's life is on the line, their freedom for decades. So normally, as you know yourself, Nicola, when you get in there, when those trials go ahead, you see the the, the suspect, the accused, never says a word, almost never gives evidence on their behalf, tend to sit quietly, tend to dress well for the most part, tend to control their demeanour, all of those things. Uh, but that just simply didn't happen in this trial. Stephen Penrose, I think it's fair to say, made a, a spectacle of, you know, which is a really horrific case for the Finnegan family to have to sit through. Um, He fired his legal team twice. He represented himself. And I think in, you know, probably the most shocking bit of it was that he, as the murder suspect, while representing himself, cross-examined the mother of his victim, uh, Angela Finnegan, was subjected to, to cross-examination by the guy who killed her son, which was ultimately proven in court, an horrific ordeal. He also cross-examined the guardie, had a outburst in court uh, where he accused a guard uh, inspector of lying. Then after his antics in court earned a rebuke from the judge, he then uh, refused to appear in court and represented him from his cell didn't give himself uh, a closing speech. So as you know yourself, and, and like over the years, you talk to pe- the, the, the families of murder victims. I mean, it's they're so traumatised. doesn't matter what the circumstances are. The, the trauma of, of the murder, but then also the trauma going through the court proceedings. However nice the court staff are, however nice the guardian are, however nice all of that. Like, it's a deeply traumatic experience to have to turn up in court, relive the whole thing, and then also worry about, is somebody going to be convicted? All of that sort of stuff. That's hard enough anyway when there's a dignity and a a proper procedure to the proceedings. So for Philip Finnegan's family to be put through this, you know, I think 
In her own victim's uh, impact statement, she described it as um, being cross-examined in that way as torture. It was unusual, but um, you can only feel for the family who were very dignified and, you know, really... Philip Finnegan, obviously, we've spoken about the fact that he got sucked into these things as a young man and, and you know, certainly was on the Garda radar. But by all accounts, was kind of a nice fella in his own way. Although he had been involved in things, you know, he was got involved at a very young age and obviously didn't have a chance to, to get out and to maybe find another life. He was also uh, a father himself. His murder has left a, a devastating hole for that family, and um, who I think spoke very well on his, on his behalf and under very extreme circumstances, you know, really kept their a dignity their dignity in the court. It cannot be easy under those conditions to have a feared criminal cross examining you, and then for that family to have to go back and live within that community. You know, that's not easy, and they were I think brave to 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 stand up to Penrose and give evidence. And what about the dog walker? If I ever happened it again, I would turn me back and walk away. Why? No, never again would I ever get uh, owned up to anything. I'd just turn me back and walk away from it. Why? Oh, no, 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 no. Not with the justice system, listen, the system, no. No, no, no. Not a favourite. Was the course experience yeah. bad? I didn't know I was impressed with it. No, no, no. You know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be, a, no, I wouldn't be out there again, never. Unless I'm up for a tax evasion or something. Other and than what no. could they have done? Could they have kept you behind the screen? I wanted, I wanted to be behind the screen. I didn't have my name published or nothing. Mm-hmm. But you walked in there like a bullock to the mart. And you do your piece. You walk back out and there's three big dirty cameras facing you. Mm-hmm. And naming you and shaming you and telling you who it is. This is the man that found it. Name never. I didn't want any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Never. That's the reason why I'll never again do one for them. Never. People just realise uh, the effect and the trauma has come behind it. They never got a phone call from anybody to say, are you okay, do you need help, counselling? No, no, that doesn't happen. You're out there, you're on your own, you're on your own. You know, no, no, not uh, very pleasant. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, Why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.